to Literature Done Juicy, a show that explores books in the juiciest way possible. For those of you that are watching the reel that I'm posting, I'm in a new setting. I'm at my boyfriend's house. In the background, I have Scooch, I have Rosie, and then I have my dog, who is Missy, just chilling there. So this is a little bit of a temporary space until I figure out what I'm doing right now. So we'll see if this audio works and if the lighting works, and we will go from there. Also, while I'm rambling on, I'd just like to give a shout out to Abby at Dolly Jean Jewels. It's a bit of a mouthful. So this necklace that you can see in the reel, it is freshwater pearls, opals, and then I got solid gold for the linkage, but you can get gold plated. And I just thought I would give her a bit of a shout out because she is a local Geelong girl making handcrafted fine jewelry. And I love and adore. So I just wanted to let you know who I am wearing in the video today. And yeah, let's just get into it. So today is season two, episode nine of our series that are focusing on lost protagonists. And the book that I'm going to be discussing today is Life of Pi by Yen Martel. Obviously, it fits the brief because it is about a young Indian boy who is shipwrecked and lost at sea with a tiger called Richard Parker. Now, in terms of Yen Martel, the author made this bold claim at the time of the publication of the story, saying that his tale will make you believe in God. And I personally didn't find this the case, but I guess you can be the judge yourself if you read it. And today, in terms of themes, I'll be covering animals, shipwreck narratives, Richard Parker, who is the tiger, religious agendas, and also losing your mind whilst isolated, specifically isolated at sea. The basis of the story is it begins with a adult Pi, who is the main character, recounting his experiences to a writer who is writing about his story. He tells the writer about his childhood in India, where his family owns a zoo, and the family then decides to immigrate to Canada, and they also want to take some of the zoo animals with them, so very Noah's Ark-esque, and they go on a Japanese cargo ship, and it encounters a storm, and it sinks, and the only survivor is Pi along with a couple of other animals, specifically Richard Parker. He finds himself on this lifeboat and he just kind of has to pass the days and survive the situation and it, it does become pretty dire and he just needs to find this way to survive whilst also coexisting with a Bengal tiger. It's kind of split into two parts, the narrative. So the main part takes place in the 1970s where we actually follow the teenage 16-year-old Pi and his family and it goes over about how they work at the zoo, how they're shipwrecked and the basis of the story. It kind of goes into a more psychological, disturbing narrative in the second part the best way to break these down would be that one perspective is the story with the animals so the story that includes Richard Parker and the zebra and then the other story consists of no animals and it's up to the reader to kind of decide which one is the more realistic story and which one is the one that is made up by Pi. Because this story starts off at the zoo with Pi explaining how his family owns and runs the zoo and his beliefs towards the raising of captive animals, animal ethics and animals in captivity is a definite theme contained within Life of Pi. And the author, Martel, actually researched a lot about animal behavior and zoology to create believable characters and a believable world where this 
family is running a zoo. And animals form a central part of the story, especially within the early years. And then also they are incredibly important when Pi is stranded on the lifeboat because he is literally stuck in one of the narratives with only animals. Pi suggests putting yourself in the shoes of animals. So he states, quote unquote, would you rather be put up at the Ritz with free room service and unlimited access to a doctor or be homeless without a soul to care for you? Pi is essentially saying that these animals within the zoo are better off than those that are out in the wild. This idealized view actually allows for Pi to create this fairy tale esque description of the animals within his zoo before he is stuck on a lifeboat with a handful of them. And he presents the zoo itself as paradise on earth, so essentially the Catholic or Christian heaven. And it demonstrates the elegant and the playful side of the zoo and it ignores the somewhat controversial aspects of zoos that can be found around the world. In terms of the poor treatment of animals, such as the orcas at SeaWorld. And I actually asked in a story the other day, posted a question to my listeners, to all of you, and asked what your opinion was on zoos. And the vast majority, I'd say approximately about 90%, were saying that you support them and you're all for them as long as they are ethical zoos. So I guess the main question would be what classifies as an ethical zoo and who is the acting authority to judge such a thing? In Australia specifically, in terms of who are responsible for the regulation of animal welfare when these animals are being put on display, it goes state by state via the government that is in power at the time. And each state and territory has an Animal Welfare Act, which is just an outline of the animal welfare legislation. Specifically, I was going through the Victorian code of practice, so the legislation within my state, and reading through it's actually quite generalized. So if I go to like one point, which is just about the enclosures for exhibited animals within Victorian zoos, it's really broad. It basically just says enclosures should be designed, constructed, serviced, and maintained in a way that ensures the good health and well-being of the animals. But then it doesn't actually go through specifically what it means for an animal to be in good health. It doesn't really go into what that actually looks like. And it also says things such as the materials used should have an ease of maintenance. But then again, it doesn't dive into what that means and what that looks like. Quite interesting because you think that your state's going to have some pretty stringent rules, but that is very, very broad. So you can see how people can abuse the system and just use zoos for profit instead of focusing more so on the reintegration of animals or the breeding of them to make sure that they don't go extinct. And another key focus is where the animals are lost at sea when Pi and his family are traveling to Canada, even though a couple of them do end up on the lifeboat with Pi, the majority of them do drown and die. And I apologize if you can hear like a panting in the background. It's literally my bull mastiff dying. I think she's just a little bit hot. So I'm trying to get her to stop because I can, I know she's going to affect the audio. But anyway, 
So back to what I was saying. So in terms of the animals that perish, it's very, very similar to what actually happened in the Titanic. And I was recently at the Titanic exhibition with a friend. It was on in Melbourne at the Melbourne Museum. I think it's still on, but it was a bit disappointing, to be honest. It was very small and it didn't really have much considering it was touting itself as the largest collection. But one thing I did notice is they did miss out on this fact that there were animals on board. So here I am just making up for their lack of information and doing the job for them. Other than humans on the Titanic, there were dogs, cats, chickens, birds, and rats on board. And in total, there are around 12 dogs and three of which actually survived. So the wealthiest patrons brought their pets and the ship itself also owned a cat, which was called Jenny. And she was a mascot of the ship and was used to keep down the rat and mice population. I managed to find a couple of details about the dogs that were on board. There was a King Charles Spaniel and also an Aradale Terrier who was owned by William and Lucille Carter and both of those did not survive. There was also a Chow Chow who was owned by a stockbroker, Harry Anderson, also sadly didn't survive. There was a French Bulldog who was actually a champion of its breed and was bought at an extremely high price of 150 pounds back in the day, which is equivalent to 13,393 pounds now. Also didn't survive. There was also another Aradale Terrier and its name was Kitty and did not survive and actually perished with her owner. So this is all very depressing and I apologize. <laughs> um, let's go to one that survived. So there was a Pomeranian who was owned by a lady called Margaret Hayes and this dog actually survived. And um, yeah, so good on him. And then there was just another dog which we don't know the breed of. It was owned by a lady called Elizabeth Rothschild and that dog also also survived. There was a few others, but they all just died. So we won't go into those, but yeah. So there was definitely a few animals that were on the Titanic and three of those managed to survive the tragedy. Now, obviously, Pi was stuck at sea and being stuck at sea in itself is a very liminal concept. And I know we're going back to this and I know I've spoken about it in other episodes such as House of Leaves and also in Piranesi. But similar to both of those, Life of Pi just oozes liminality because it's the separation from his family and also separation from India. And then he enters this liminal space, which is the ocean, allowing him to challenge his identity and also subvert higher hierarchies and when I state hierarchies I mean in terms of the animals and the people predominantly that he is surrounding himself with. So the identity of humans and animals within the story gradually merges so it becomes almost indistinguishable and this is done so through the dual narratives. One is more fantastical and has more religious allegory while the other is quite dark, depressing and violent. With these two narratives Martel manages to establish a liminal zone where transformation and renewal can take place for Pi and the other characters that are involved. Then also in regards to the writing, it can be very much described as carnivalesque, which is the blurring of the boundary between humans and animals. And it acts within the story to reinvent, reinterpret and make sense of a deeply traumatic event. Being stuck at sea would not be fun and it would mess with your mind and it would mess with your body. It'd be a very trying and depressing and disturbing time. And it would definitely 
definitely make you have to reflect quite thoroughly within yourself. So associating humans with animals dehumanizes them and it also strips them of human civility and faculty of reason. And because the reasoning has been removed, it justifies the actions of those that are on board the boat with Pi. So the narrative where animals are placed instead of the potential humans, these actions are justified in Pi's mind because they are committed by animals rather than by humans. The Carnivalesque is a literary mode which was developed by a Russian philosopher named Mikhail Bakhtin. And that is the very Aussie way of pronouncing that. I actually had a YouTube of (laughs) how to pronounce his name and I was like, yeah, no, that's not happening. So the carnivalesque often involves just the inversion of traditional hierarchies, suspending societal rules, which is what is happening in Life of Pi when he is stuck on the boat with the animals and the animals have the power over Pi. Now, his work primarily focuses on literature, but it is a concept that can be applied through various cultural circumstances. There's a couple of key elements to carnivalesque. So number one is the inversion of hierarchies. So those that are considered outsiders become central figures. So Richard Parker can be considered an outsider because he was trapped in a zoo, and now the power has been inverted. The second key element is grotesque bodies. So it's usually this celebration of the grotesque or the exaggerated body. And the best real life example of this are freak shows. The third element is satirical critique. So it usually means that there is some sort of satire or parody which is directed at authority figures or established norms. In terms of Life of Pi, it is discussing the imbalance between humans and animals and also human life in general, how different classes have different rights and privileges. I don't really think I can discuss carnivalesque without having a little dive into freak shows in general. So they were a form of entertainment that gained popularity between the 19th and 20th centuries. The Victorians love them. Um, They're into just a lot of weird stuff, it seems. People that were in these shows usually had physical abnormalities, medical conditions or disabilities, or they were individuals who were deemed exotic because they were from an unfamiliar background to the Western audiences that viewed them. These people, like the animals within Life of Pi, were considered the other and less than human. Because of these deformities and these abnormalities, they were treated as animals rather than people. One of the most famous performers within the historical freak show was Grady Stiles Jr. He was actually a fourth generation of a family who were all born with ectrodactyli. So basically what happens is both hands or one hand kind of looks like a lobster's claw because the fingers are all molded together. And he began performing early as the lobster boy. But then in 1978, got a bit angry at his daughter because her husband-to-be had called him a freak. Her husband was actually only 18 at the time. Styles went and got his gun and shot him to death. What's really interesting though is that he confessed 
stating that the kid had attacked him, but then he had shot him. He was actually convicted of third-degree murder, though, not self-defense or manslaughter or anything like that. And I shouldn't really laugh, but it's kind of funny. In the witness testimony, there was the fat lady and uh, the bearded woman who were witnesses to testify. Even though that was done and dusted, the facilities at the time weren't equipped to deal with his physical condition. So instead of prison, he was sentenced to house arrest and then had 15 years probation. So he was living at home. Then plot twist, in 1992, his wife and then her son, who was, can't make this up, and then her son, who was named a human blockhead, hired another sideshow performer to kill Styles, so to kill her husband and their dad, for $1,500. This sideshow performer, who was named Christopher White, then shot him multiple times in the back of the head while he was watching TV in his trailer. And not many people really liked Styles, it seems, because only 10 people came to his funeral. There was actually a banner that read, from your loving wife with a bouquet of flowers even though she was the one that had hired the hitman to kill him so yeah that's a really upbeat fun and positive story but it is interesting because the carnivalesque is meant to be the uprising of the other and the main animal which is on the boat with pie is richard parker So his relationship with the tiger is without sentiment in the sense that Richard Parker inspires both fear and awe into Pi. He's this Bengal tiger who is Pi's companion, but then after the shipwreck, he plays this crucial role in affirming Pi's religious faith. So Richard Parker is from Edgar Allan Poe's novel, The Narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket. For those of you that don't know, Edgar Allan Poe is one of the most infamous horror writers in terms of specifically short stories. He's very influential. I guess if you've seen that Simpsons episode that talks about the raven, that is a Poe story. In Poe's story, there is a shipwreck and on this shipwreck is a man called Richard Parker and he is stuck on a lifeboat with a bunch of other people and in this story he is a person and not a tiger there are also three others who are trapped in this lifeboat with him and he actually draws out the short straw literally when they all vote to see who's going to sacrifice themselves to feed the rest of the crew members and sadly Richard Parker is the one who draws this straw Having a tiger on the lifeboat with Pi is a reference to Poe and a reference to this character. However, it's subverting the character's ending. On top of that, Pi, which isn't actually his full name, it's his nickname, is a mathematical symbol. It blurs the lines between the names and naming and it creates new associations between the protagonists and a sense of human-animal community because Richard Parker, the Bengal tiger, has a human name whereas Pi has a mathematical equation as a name. Richard Parker also kind of stands in as God. He symbolizes God. And this tool is used within the Chronicles of Narnia, where we have the lion who is also God. So the relationship between Richard Parker and I is based not really on friendship and it's not based on ownership, but it is definitely based on Pi's respect Pi is under no illusion that he will be able to befriend or domesticate Richard Parker. He knows it's just not within the animal's nature. All he has to do is exist with this tiger instead of trying to take ownership over it, much like they were doing within the zoo. 
at the point within the novel where Pai is just suffering, he is very miserable, he is in desolation, and he actually finds solace and faith and is consoled by the presence of Richard Parker, who becomes this version of Pai's god. The other animals he still sees as different from himself. In his mind, it's natural for animals to kill and eat flesh, but he is still, even trapped in this boat, does not believe that this is the right or natural thing to do. So the truthfulness in the story narrated by Pi has always been a matter of concern to many academics as the traumatic ordeals that he went through raised great psychological distress, which would render him quite delusional. It makes sense to Pi that animals would hurt and kill each other and eat each other because he's so traumatized by what actually happened on that boat. It makes him be able to justify what occurred because it's an animal doing it, mind and not a human. The best scene within Life of Pi to demonstrate this is the one where the Frenchman is on the boat with Pi and Richard Parker. Both Richard Parker and Pi go blind and it's not really described as to why this is, but it's believed that it's because the madness, the cabin fever is creeping in. Whilst he is blind, Pi just starts talking to this unknown voice about all the food that he wants to eat. So he talks about figs, potatoes, lentils, and then the voice ends up suggesting eating food such as pancreas or brain of a calf. Pi then realises that it's actually Richard Parker that he's been talking to, and for some weird reason he has a French accent. And then randomly, Pi hears another voice and it's a Frenchman who is on another lifeboat who is at sea and has also lost their sight. And again, they start telling each other nonsensical stories about food and survival methods. But then when Pi invites the Frenchman onto the lifeboat, the man attempts to kill Pi and eat him. And then last minute, Richard Parker jumps in and kills this Frenchman. So when Pi regains his eyesight, he observes the violence and the carnage everywhere and he's really, really disturbed but is practical and ends up eating the flesh and also using his arm for fishing. The author wants the reader to decide whether or not Pi was the one who killed this man or whether it was in fact the tiger, whether Richard Parker actually was on that boat. I personally believe that Pi is using a coping mechanism of false memories to be able to deal with the trauma that's occurred to him. I am not a very spiritual person, so the more fantastical spiritual elements that the author is wanting you to believe in doesn't really fit into my belief system or into what I would think would be plausible but I do understand why Pi would develop false memories over killing someone and eating them. There is actually a true story of something similar which occurred in 2012. There was a Salvadorian fisherman who was called Salvador Alvarenga and he went on a fishing trip from Mexico and he ended up being stuck out at sea for 438 days. He also had paid a teenager called Ezequiel Cordoba to navigate the boat for his 
fishing trip. So what happened is the boat got caught in a storm and they lost engines and also their communication equipment. And they were relying on rainwater, raw fish and birds to survive. But unfortunately, the teenager died within just a few weeks because of malnutrition and exposure. And then Salvador ended up eating the corpse of the teenager that was on the boat. After all that time out at sea, he ended up just washing ashore onto the Marshall Islands, and this was in January 2014. So two years later, which is ridiculous, he ended up telling the story of how he survived. He did say he faced psychological challenges and he did have many, many hallucinations and thoughts of suicide, but he was just determined to survive and that's what kept him going. So these hallucinations are obviously very applicable to what Pi is experiencing when he is stuck on the boat and also the cannibalism and feeding off a deceased is very, very familiar. The family of the teenager actually tried to sue Salvador for $1 million for the cannibalism, but it wasn't successful. I definitely find it quite hard to believe that Pi's version, which includes all the animals, occurred. And I don't understand how the author really truly believes that his novel will make people believe in God and will embrace religion because it seems quite matter of fact to me. I'll end up doing a post on Instagram or a story on Instagram so you can tell me what you think. But that's my personal opinion on the two versions of the stories. And I also think that's all we have time for today. I hope that you've learned something new and please remember to subscribe to the podcast and also rate and review if you haven't already. Our Instagram is in the description box for even more refreshing content. So we've got at literature done juicy and we've also got our watermelon pros Instagram that you can follow. In the next episode, I will be talking about a dystopian, which is part of a trilogy, but this is obviously the first book and I'm quite excited about it. And it is The Passage by Justin Cronin. I am your host, Jade, and until next time, happy reading and stay juicy.